Good evening, everyone. We continue our series on the passions. I began two weeks ago speaking about the passions in general. And last week, we spoke about the first of the passions, gluttony. Before we begin this week's passion, I'd like to review our general understanding of the passions. Again, we're talking about the important spiritual science of discerning spirits, understanding the sources of the different interior promptings that urge us to good and evil and how to deal with them, specifically how to deal with the three enemies of our human nature, the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we're, spoke, we're focusing especially on the flesh in as much as the passions within us are part of our flesh. But of course, we're approaching them from the understanding that we have a fallen human nature. So the terms that we use are loaded, gluttony, lust, greed, anger, sadness, whereas the approach we're taking and that of the desert fathers, the Greek fathers, is that of spiritual thoughts or passions within us that are morally neutral. And we'll talk about more about that in a second. But we're talking about how to deal with the three enemies of our human nature, the world, those external influences on our interior life, but we're focusing especially on the flesh, the passions within us, and the devil, the evil spirits who prompt us to evil, and especially in as much as those demons correspond to the passions. For each of the passions, there is a specific corresponding demon that likes to tag team with them and torment us. We all always struggle with the passions. They affect us, our interior dispositions, the choices we make. So we need to better learn about them and understand how to deal with them so as to better love and serve God and others, which is, of course, our ultimate goal. Again, we're following the teaching of the Desert Fathers who understood that dealing with the passions is a matter of seeking healing from the spiritual wounds that we suffer, those wounds that are a result of the sin of our first parents. So remember, it's important to understand that the passions are morally neutral in themselves. Their natural desires, movements, the fathers of the desert call them the thoughts, the eight thoughts or suggestions that are within us. However, we do experience them as being at war within us because of our fallen human nature. Nevertheless, their goodness or evil depends on how we consent to them, how we respond to these movements in our soul. They need to be governed by our reason, understood by our reason, and governed by our will. They only become sinful when we freely choose to live them in an unloving, uncharitable way. That's why it may be frustrating, but it's true that one can be tempted a thousand times a day and still not sin. Sin is in the will. It's in the free consent. Our passions are sinful, perverted, or disordered when we choose to change their finality. That is, all of these passions have a particular purpose or end. They become sinful when we choose to indulge the passion as an end in and of itself rather as a, than as a means to an end. It's also important to understand that all of the passions are interrelated. One leads to another, and it's impossible to overcome one without addressing and overcoming the others. Christ does his part. He's the divine physician. He shows compassion. He always offers forgiveness, healing, consolation. He comes to save us and to heal the whole person. But we have to do our part to cooperate with his divine healing. And we do so in two ways, in the supernatural way and in the natural way, as it were, using spiritual tools such as sacraments and prayer to receive the grace we need and to fight the thoughts suggested by the world, the flesh, and the devil, especially using sacred scripture. And of course, we have the natural tools, the physical tools like self-denial and disciplining the flesh through fasting and other penances. We have to be intentional about this, about using these spiritual and physical tools, because this, these passions cannot be overcome and properly ordered without 
engaging the battle, without fighting this spiritual combat. And we have to realize that healing is possible. While the passions are natural and will always be there and part of us, we can truly grow to govern them, be detached from them, not be assessed, obsessed by them, or to really suffer from them. And so to live not self-love, love of our fallen self and our passions, but true love of self, of others, and of God, which is manifested in our works of charity, that is, in our love for God and others. So last week I spoke of what the fathers consider the first of the passions, gluttony. You see, the desire for food is so basic that it is the first of the passions. Of course, we, we, we need to eat and drink to stay alive. But because that desire is so basic, if it's not governed by reason and will, as I mentioned last week, if it's not understood by the reason and governed by the will, we ultimately lose self-control. And then the other passions follow in turn, right? If we abdicate control over that most basic of our passions and can't use our will to govern that passion, then we've abdicated the will's governance over our passions and the others follow like a train. And that's why the fathers are unanimous in saying that the passion of gluttony leads to the next most physical or what they call corporal passion, which is lust. So welcome to the talk on lust. Uh, if we abdicate self-control over the passion for food, our will is weakened in the face of the other passions. Again, either we govern our passions with our will, or they dominate us. Now, the passion for lust follows from original sin. As I mentioned last week, we see the logical progression of all the passions right at the beginning of Genesis, at the fall of our first parents. What is the sin that tempts Eve and Adam? Gluttony. The food is pleasing, right? And they take from the food of the, the fruit of the tree of good and evil. What's the next thing that happens? They cover themselves up because they're ashamed of their nakedness. And they find, as the Lord explains, that they have a concupiscent urge for each other. They, don't, they no longer look at each other and see the whole person. They look at each other and see the body of the other with lust. And so that... This passion follows from original sin, and now that, that desire for sex is experienced in a, as, as a concupiscible appetite, as a, as a dis, in a disordered way, and that's why it needs to be understood and properly oriented and chosen and governed. Since then, of course, humanity has been consumed by, and I think it's fair to say that our society is consumed by the passion of lust. Consider over 65% of seniors in high school have had sexual intercourse. Cohabitation, which ultimately means the sin of fornication, has risen a thousand percent in the last 50 years. Two million children are exploited every year in the global commercial sex trade. Two million children. The United States pornography industry brings in over eight billion dollars a year. Think of all the things that we could do for the needy and the poor with eight billion dollars a year. Our media, movies, songs, videos, series are saturated with sexual imagery and language. A friend of mine used to refer to it as the OSS, the obligatory sex scene. You're watching a series, you're watching, and all of a sudden there's a sex scene, and it has nothing to do, whatever, with the, with the plot or with the story. It doesn't add anything. They have to throw it in there, because it's just expected. And of course, this is all with devastating effects on individuals, children, and families. 
What's the true purpose of this passion? What is its natural end? What's its natural reason for existing? God gave it to us. He made us this way. The true purpose of the passion, of the desire for sex in God's plan, the way it's lived in charity, that is in a loving way, the way it's lived in a healthy way, as the fathers of the desert would say, the way that it's a means to an end, because it's morally neutral, is that the true end of this passion, the true purpose of this passion, is for the growth of marriage and family life. Right? And of course, the two ends of marriage, which are related intimately with the, the nature of and the purpose of human sexuality and sexual activity, are the unitive and the procreative. First of all, the unitive end of marriage and ultimately of human sexuality, that is the good of the spouses and the union in love and mutual support of the husband and wife at every level. And then the procreative, right? The transmission of life, the procreation and education of children, the formation of a family. The true purpose of the passion of the desire for sex in God's plan is for man and woman to join together in that lifetime, irrevocable, faithful commitment open to life. Those are the three goods of marriage, right? That marriage is permanent, uh, faithful and fruitful. Right? Now, that passion becomes perverted when it's perverted in its purpose, in its end. What is the purpose of this passion? What is, it's a means to an end, which is to foster marriage and family life. It becomes perverted, again, when the passion becomes the end in and of itself, when there becomes an inordinate focus on the passion itself. And so it's lived in an uncharitable way, not in a loving way, and it's lived in an unhealthy way which damages the human person and the human person's relation with others and with God. Now, according to the fathers, and it makes sense, the passion of lust is not so much, remember we talked about gluttony having, having two types of gluttony. There's gluttony of quantity, how much you eat, eating too much, and the gluttony of quality, that is focusing inordinately on the quality of the type or the kind of food, right? Lust is not so matter, much a matter of quantity, but of quality, right? That is, the sexual activity takes place only with a view to pleasure. It reduces the other person to an object of pleasure. It's not necessarily the matter of how much, it's a question of what kind of sexual activity, and that means sexual activity outside of marriage. When the unitive aspect of sexual, of, of sexual activity is removed, that is the union and mutual support of the spouses in love, then all that remains is for it to be, and the procreative element, that is the, the, the procreation education of children, all that remains is the pleasure, right? And then it becomes an end in and of itself. What is the pathology of this spiritual illness, of this, of this uh, passion of, of lust? How does it wound us? How does it make us sick as human persons? Well, of course, in our relationship with God, this inordinate focus on what is material and what is flesh is to the detriment of our spiritual relationship, especially our relationship with God and our encounter with God. People who are given over inordinately to lust don't focus on prayer. And I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. Right now we're talking about the pathology, and then we'll talk about the treatment of this spiritual illness, of this passion of lust. Right? People who are inordinately focused on and given over to the passion of lust aren't spending quality time with the Lord and really focusing on their spiritual lives as they should. Of course, it also wounds and brings an illness to our relationship with ourselves. Giving ourselves over to the passion of lust deforms the image of God in us, right? We are made in the image of God. 
at every level in a sense. And we don't have a body. We are a body. We are a perfect union of body and soul, right? We're not just, we're not bodies without souls. We're not like robots and we're not disembodied souls. We don't have a body. We are a body. We are a human person, body and soul. And when we give ourselves over to the passion of lust, we deform the image of God, making our body, which is called to be sanctified along with our souls, a mere instrument of pleasure. Also, when we, we affect ourselves and become spiritually ill and wounded, when we give ourselves over to this passion because our reason and will and affect become slaves of the search for pleasure. You notice that when people start pursuing just sex, they lose their minds. They don't think straight. They don't choose right. right? It clouds the judgment. It clouds the, it clouds the judgment and it clouds the choices because of the obsession with the passion. It also, as the fathers of the desert say, results in bodily agitation, restlessness of the soul, turns into ultimately sexual obsessions and fetishes, and ultimately a type of madness. Madness. I know people who have destroyed their faith, their careers, and their families because of lust. Period. People close to me, very close to me. It's a sad thing to see. It also affects, of course, obviously our relations with others. They cease to exist as persons and they become mere objects for us. And that means it's a type of idolatry. You see that especially in pornography. These are disembodied people we don't know, but they just become objects of sexual pleasure. It's an idolatry. We worship these images. As St. Paul says in his first letter to Thessalonians, this is the will of God, your holiness, that you refrain from immorality, not engaging in lustful passion as do the Gentiles who do not know God, not to take advantage of or exploit a brother in this matter, for the Lord is an avenger in all these things. For God did not call us to impurity, but to holiness. Whoever disregards this disregards God who gives us his Holy Spirit. My friends, do Christians, do believers in the Most High God who have a relationship with Jesus Christ as the most important person in their lives, do we engage in the same sexual behavior, behaviors as non-believers, as the Gentiles, as the pagans? Do we dress the same way? Do we dance the same way? Do we watch the same series and movies and listen to the same music and look at the same images and entertain the same thoughts and speak with the same type of conversations and do the same kinds of things? Now, lust is not a warm demonstrative affection for others, romantic or otherwise. Lust is when it's all about selfish pleasure. There's a place for warm demonstrative affection for others. Right? within a romantic relationship or outside of a romantic relationship, even between people of the opposite sex and people of the same sex. Right? So let's talk about the treatment of this passion. How do we get healed of this passion? How do we live it in a charitable way, that is in a loving way for God, self, and others? How do we live it in a healthy way that brings healing to ourselves? Well, of course, in all of these passions, it's a question of cultivating the opposite virtue. With gluttony, it's cultivating the virtue of temperance. With 
with lust, it's cultivating the virtue of chastity, which is properly ordering our, ordering our sexuality according to our state in life, right? Chastity for a single person means abstaining from all sexual activity. Chastity for a priest or a consecrated religious living the vow of chastity or celibacy means abstaining from all sexual activity, but it's ordered to a particular spousal relationship, right? I am, as it were, married to the church as an image of Christ who is the bridegroom of the bride, his church. I'm not just kind of like some single dude that's celibate to be single. I am celibate because I have a spousal relationship with the church. And of course, married people, chastity means they can have sexual relations in marriage, within the context of marriage, right? Each person is called to cultivate the virtue of chastity, that is, properly ordered sexuality according to their state in life. And not just at a physical level, but also at an emotional level, and even a spiritual level, at every level. Keeping in mind that chastity is not a cold and distant, doesn't make for cold and distant people, right? It actually, true chastity is warm and affectionate. It just properly orders our relations to others, especially in terms of physical affection. So how do we grow in this virtue and how do we find health and healing regarding this passion of lust? Well, again, we work on the supernatural level and we work on the natural level. Let me speak first about the supernatural and that is especially prayer. Prayer in, in, in the widest sense of all the spiritual uh, means of grace that are at our disposal. First of all, the greatest prayer, the holy sacrifice of the Mass, receiving frequently the most blessed sacrament of the Eucharist and celebrating frequently the sacrament of penance, remembering that the sacraments are the greatest sources of God's grace. A close second, I believe, is mental prayer. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Mental prayer is really what makes for mature Catholic Christians. And the greatest spiritual masters, uh, Gary Goulagrange will say this, Father Tanqueray in his model on the ascetical, mystical, spiritual life says, someone can persevere and continue to commit mortal sin after mortal sin after mortal sin if they're just engaged in devotional prayers. People can pray the rosary every day and go from mortal sin to mortal sin and do the stations of the cross and mortal sin to mortal sin. But someone who spends an hour of serious heart-to-heart -heart mental prayer with Jesus going there at the depths of their heart and dealing and speaking with him about what they most need to talk about and seeking the healing in an honest dialogue with Jesus, that person's not gonna be committing mortal sins. Someone who prays for an hour a day in a heart-to-heart -heart, true mental prayer with their best friend Jesus doesn't commit mortal sins. And someone who's committing mortal sins isn't gonna spend an hour having a heart-to-heart -heart, honest conversation with Jesus every day. The two are almost mutually exclusive. Mental prayer is the key. Why? Because in mental prayer, you have that heart-to-heart -heart intimate conversation with the Lord. You develop that intimate relationship and sense of his presence. And that presence becomes so intimate that then when you go about your business the rest of the day, obviously that prayer bears fruit throughout the day and you have to continue to pray throughout the day. But as you go throughout your day and you're tempted, you say, Jesus, I'm not going there. Jesus, I know that's not gonna make me happy. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, help me. Jesus, right? We have, an, we have an, that's easy because we have an easy familiarity with him because we've spent quality time with him every day. Again, it's what makes for mature Christians, it what makes, it's what makes for saints, mental prayer. Mental prayer, so in general, but of course mental prayer means going there intimately with the Lord and praying for the grace you desire and dealing with what you need to deal with most importantly with him in that prayer. 
And then, of course, there are other prayers, vocal prayers and prayers that are tailored to the particular challenge at hand. We pray for the grace that we desire. Ask for the grace of chastity to the Lord in your prayers. Ask for purity of mind and word and deed. Pray with and be confident. With the, ask for the grace of confidence also. That is the confident trust, which ultimately is the virtue of hope that trust that God is with us and he never allows us to be tempted beyond our ability to resist. The grace of God in us is always, always, always infinitely greater than any temptation, any demon, any passion of ours. We can, with the aid of his grace, always choose what is good. That is the greatest power in the universe. So let us be confident in going forward and fighting these battles. And the trick also is not to get all all bent out of shape and just give it over to the Lord. Let go and let God. I know it's trite, but it's true. Just, you know, Jesus, with you, this, this demon has no power over me. This passion does not govern me. You and your grace govern my life. And also, we can't give in to these thoughts that, well, I've done this so many times, or this passion is so strong, or it's an addiction, or this, and it's just like, Sometimes I think those become self-fulfilling prophecies, right? It doesn't matter how many times you've committed a sin, how long you've committed a sin, how serious the sin is. We believe in the power of the grace of God to transform lives when we open our hearts to it. Now, grace isn't magic. We have to cooperate with it and do these things. But it can transform our lives. Lust is not a problem without a solution. But the solution is Jesus Christ and the power of his grace. He can heal us and he can deliver us from slavery to this passion. Pray when you're tempted. In that moment of temptation, invoke the holy name of Jesus. I mentioned this last week. The holy name of Jesus is powerful against any demon and against any passion. Lord Jesus Christ, in the name, uh, in your holy name, I rebuke the demon of lust. Jesus, help me. Jesus, have mercy on me. Jesus, I trust in you. Jesus, use that holy name out loud because the demons can only hear what you say out loud. They can't hear what's in your heart. And use that holy name as a powerful weapon against the Lord. Also use the holy name of and the intercession of the mother of the incarnate one, the Blessed Virgin Mary, who in her litany is titled Mother Most Pure and Mother Most Chaste. She is extraordinarily powerful over any demon. Invoke her name, pray her holy rosary, invoke St. Joseph, Invoke St. Michael the Archangel. Invoke your guardian angel. They will help you do spiritual combat. Call them to mind. Ask for their help. And again, make the demon of lust submit in the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I, I rebuke the demon of lust. In the name of Jesus, I renounce you, demon of lust. In the name of Jesus, I command you to depart, demon of lust. Say it in your own words. Say it out loud. It works because Jesus works. That on the level of prayer, on the spiritual level, talking about the material more uh, uh, on the level of uh, nature, grace and nature, we have to work. We have to work on the natural level. First of all, cultivate true, chaste friendships with men and women. And that means especially friendships that are involved in getting together in groups. Obviously, we want to have great, intimate, true friendships with individuals. But it's important also, especially with regard to attraction to the opposite sex, of getting together in groups. Sometimes people jump into really quickly. Into, they're attracted to someone, so they start dating exclusively. Mm -hmm. Take the time to get to know each other 
in a more, in a broader social context. But cultivate true and chaste friendships with members of the same sex and the opposite sex. These are friendships which are affectionate and warm and demonstrative, right? St. Paul says when he writes to the Christians, greet one another with a holy kiss, right? You can be affectionate, warm, and demonstrative without being lustful. And you can, so again, chastity does not mean having relationships with others which are cold and distant and callous, right? It, it's, chastity is warm. Work by avoiding the occasions of sin. Now, one of the biggest and most important tricks in overcoming the passion of lust is to banish the temptation at the very beginning. The first step is the most crucial. You gotta nip it in the bud. From that first moment that thought jumps into your head or you're tempted to start looking at something or touching something or someone, that's when you have to stop. Because once you start entertaining those thoughts, or then it's like a slippery slope and it's hard to turn back, right? So nip it in the bud. That first step is the most crucial step to fight that battle. That's where the battle is really won. Practice custody of thought. Replace those tempting thoughts with prayer or other thoughts and activities. When a, when a thought, uh, an unchaste thought jumps into your head, banish it immediately with a prayer. Remember, you can be tempted a thousand times a day, and that can be terribly frustrating, I think, especially with this passion, but that doesn't mean you're sinning. Don't be too hard on yourself. Don't slack either, but when those, the, these feelings and these thoughts surge, deal with them. Don't entertain them, but remember that you're not responsible for things that just happen naturally within you. Okay. Practice custody of the eyes. Obviously, avoid inappropriate looks and avoid inappropriate images. And be temperate with alcohol or any other medications, not to mention uh, illegal drugs or even certain legal drugs these days. <coughs> Weed, <coughs> right? Be temperate, be temperate with alcohol and drugs so as not to weaken your will. Everyone knows you have a few drinks, your inhibitions are lowered, right? Your will is weakened, you're not thinking straight, and boom, it leads to other sins. Fast regularly. Remember, the demon of gluttony and the passion of gluttony lead to the passion of lust. If you abdicate control over that most basic of your passions, the desire for food and drink, then your will is weakened and you're giving up controlling your passions. Instead of using your will to govern your passions, they dominate you and you're on your way to the train wreck of all the passions, right? That's why oftentimes people, if they ask my advice or even in the confessional, this is something they struggle with, I say, fast. Are you fasting? Fast regularly, if not daily. Every day, some form of self-denial. doesn't have to be a major thing where you're starving yourself, right? But today, no coffee. Tomorrow, no meat. The next day, no sweets. Every day, some form of self-denial. Right? That way you get used to using your will to govern your passion for food. That strengthens your will to be able then to say no to the passion of lust. Right? And finally, be attentive to your physical health. Get enough exercise and rest. Mm -hmm. When we're run down, we also, uh, we also find ourselves more... Um, more, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, well, when we're run down, you know how it is. You get run down, you get all stressed out, you get all tired, and you're more easily given to things you shouldn't. So let us pray and work with great confidence 
and so seek the healing that we desire over this passion so that we properly order it, so that we live our human sexuality properly ordered out of love for God and love for neighbor, so that we can also become detached from this passion, live it in the proper way, find the healing that we desire, and ultimately grow in holiness. Amen.